If you've got a Bible, if you'd like to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 4. One Chronicles chapter 4, I'm going to start reading from verse 5. Ashur, the father of Tekoa, had two wives, Hela and Nara. Nara bore him Ahazam, Hepher, Temani, and Hahashtari. These were the sons of Nara. The sons of Hela, Zereth, Ijar, and Ethnam. Koz fathered Anub, Zubeba, and the clans of Ahahel, the son of Haram. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, because I bore him in pain. Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. Have you ever wondered why the Bible spends so much time on genealogies and lists of names. There are large sections of Genesis and Numbers, Chronicles and other books that are devoted to these lists of names. And for my daily Bible readings, I usually follow a plan that takes you through the whole Bible in one year. I think it's a good routine to follow, um, except that the plan I normally use uh, schedules the uh, book of Job at Christmas time, which really doesn't seem particularly festive. And there are certain daily readings over the year um, where I will be flicking the pages over a bit faster than on other days, and these lists of names will definitely fall into that category. And Chronicles spends the first nine chapters just listing names so that you feel like saying, can we please just get to the story? But there's a reason why these lists of names are there. They're communicating an important message to us because the first readers of the book of Chronicles were the remnant of the kingdom of Judah that had been taken into exile in Babylon. It was immediately after that event had happened that uh, Chronicles was written. So their nation had been conquered, their temple had been destroyed, many, many of the people had died, and this minority group had been taken into exile to find themselves now living in a foreign land, surrounded by a foreign culture, surrounded by idol worship. And with all of the basis of their own system of worship, which had all revolved around the temple, just swept away. These people must have wondered, were 
they still part of God's plan? Was there any future for them? Were they simply going to fade away and be forgotten and lost to history? And they opened up Chronicles, and they read in all those genealogies, chapter after chapter of them, that they were not some forgotten remnant, that in fact they were part of this line that stretched all the way back to Adam and Eve, to the creation of the world, and a line in which every generation was known by name to God. All of these names are people about whom we know absolutely nothing, but we see in there that God knew every single one of them and that he remembered them. And that it was through them, through all of these names and all of these different generations, that God was working out his purpose. And so those exiles in Babylon could read that and see, I'm part of this. I am part of this line that stretches back to the creation of the world. I'm part of this series of generations through whom God has worked out his purposes and whom God has not forgotten. And today we also stand as part of that line, that we are one of those generations and that God knows us by name just as he knew all of those people by name and that God is continuing to work his purposes out through us and our generations and that he will continue to work his purposes out in the generations that will follow in our descendants. And that's the message behind all of these names that we read in books like Chronicles. And as the spotlight pans across the generations and across all of these groups of people, every now and then it stops on an individual and gives us just a glimpse of their own story. And whenever it does that, it's for a reason. And so it's worth taking the time to pause whenever the spotlight pauses and to find out why and what we can learn from this particular person. And Jabez is one of those people. So we know very little about Jabez, nothing other than what we read here. We know that he's one of the descendants of Judah, but we can't pinpoint exactly when he lived. All we know is that it's at some point after about the time of Judges, or possibly David, or Solomon, or one of the kings that followed Solomon. So we're looking at, he was sometime in a, in a span of some centuries that he lived, but we really don't know when. We do know that he had a difficult birth. So difficult, in fact, that his mother chose to give him a name that sounded like the word pain, so that the pain of his birth would always be remembered. Now, I think that this would have had a negative impact on Jabez in more than one way. Firstly, an impact of guilt. So, throughout all of his childhood, he would not have been able to escape these constant reminders that his mother suffered such pain in giving birth to him. I mean, you can imagine a day in the childhood of Jabez. Good morning, you caused me pain. Did you have a nice day at school, you caused me pain. 
day after day, this constant reminder in his own name of the circumstances of his birth. And there was also the belief at this time that the name that you were given would shape your whole character and your destiny, your future. For example, Jacob is called the grasper, and he grows up prepared to deceive his own family in order to get what he wants. Abraham is called the father of nations, which is what he becomes. But what if you were given the name pain? What is that going to tell you about who you are in the life that you're going to lead? Jabez was left with the expectation that his life would be filled with pain. So Jabez was living with the memory of pain and with the expectation of pain. But we are also told that Jabez was an honorable man, more honorable than the people around him. Now these days, we hear that word used most often to refer to members of parliament, the honorable gentleman or the honorable lady, and maybe they're not always the best examples to us of what the word means. They don't even know that you can automatically delete your WhatsApp messages. So the word honorable is perhaps one that uh, we don't get the full impact of the meaning of it. But it shows us that Jabez had something in his character that set him apart from the people around him, something that made him deserving of receiving honor and respect. Consider when he lived. I mean, the whole history of those centuries, that whole period from Judges all the way through to when Judah is taken into exile in Babylon, that whole period is one where you see repeated descent into idol worship, punctuated by brief periods of revival of the worship of God before once again the nation slides back into idolatry. Again and again, the people of Israel were praying to idols when they were in need, when they wanted to see good harvests, when they wanted victory over their enemies, when they wanted good health. They would turn to the idols. They would pray and bow down to the idols for the things that they need. But we see here that when Jabez was in need, he did not conform to the pattern of the culture around him. Instead, he prayed to God. He rejected the prevailing practices of the people around him. He refused to engage in their idolatry. He was willing to stand out and be set apart. And that was the thing that made him honorable. We see he was honorable because he prayed to God. And that one prayer of his that we have a record of is only a very short prayer. It doesn't take very long to read it. But there are some important principles in there that we can learn from it. And the first thing we learn here is the importance of praying out the promises of God. Now, in his prayer, Jabez makes four requests. Two of them are for material blessings. They are for God to enlarge his borders and for God to keep him from harm and pain. The other two are for spiritual blessings, 
relating to his own relationship with God, that God would bless him and that God's hand would be with him. And in each of these requests, Jabez is praying for something that God has already promised, something that he would know from the written law of God was something that God had promised to his people. So perhaps when Jabez is praying for God to bless him, to enlarge his border, as he prays for God to enlarge his border, he is perhaps remembering that right back at the beginning of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1:28, we read God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Jabez recalls this, perhaps, and therefore prays, God, enlarge my border, which is what God had promised and God had commanded his people to do. And then perhaps also, as he's praying for material things, and material blessing, he's remembering Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 where God says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And perhaps when he prays that God would bless him, he remembers Deuteronomy chapter 28, where, again, after God has said to his people, If you will obey the law and will be faithful to me, then in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 3, it says, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl, blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. And when he prayed for God's hands to be with him, he might have remembered Exodus 15 and verse 6 that says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So on the face of it, you could look at what Jabez is praying and think he's being a little bit presumptuous. I mean, he's just praying for himself. He's just praying for his own success and for his own blessing and to be free from harm. And you might think, oh, this is a little bit presumptuous. Wouldn't it be better, Jabez, if you prayed for the nation around you, uh, prayed for needy people in other situations rather than just praying for yourself? And yet, what gave him the confidence to come to God and to ask for these things was that God had already promised them. They were all written down. Jabez would know that he was praying for what was already on God's heart to do. Because God had clearly revealed a heart that desired to bless his people. And there's a connection here with what Jesus said to his disciples. See, in John chapter 14 and verse 13, Jesus said to his disciples, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. But what does it mean 
however, to ask for something in the name of Jesus. Well, it, it doesn't mean that at the end of a prayer, you just tack on the phrase, and we ask this in your name, amen. And you think, got it, tick the box, I've asked for that in the name of Jesus, so it should happen. <laughs> One theologian said, praying in Jesus' name does not involve magical incantations, but rather expresses alignment of one's desires and purposes with God. So, asking for something in the name of Jesus does not just mean a magical incantation that you say, uh, we ask this in your name, Jesus, as though that's like a spell from Harry Potter and that's the magic words that make it happen. But as he said there, it is expressing an alignment of your desires and your purposes with God. To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray with your will and desires lined up with God's will and desires. And when we pray for those things that God has promised, then we can pray for what we know is his will and desire, so we can pray with confidence. We can pray with faith, because we know that what we are praying for lines up with the heart of God and the purposes of God, because what we're praying for is what he has already promised. So John, who recorded what Jesus said to his disciples there, makes the same point again in his first letter in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So there again, he says, here's the confidence. Here's the confidence that we've got when we pray that if we're asking for things according to his will, then we can ask with confidence because we know he's going to hear us in that. And so if we ask for what God has already promised, we can ask with confidence because we ask according to his will. So let's be familiar and aware of the things that God has promised, the promises that we see in his word, the promises that he makes to us through prophetic promises that we've received as a church or as individuals, to keep on praying those things, as Jabez did, to say, God, would you do this thing that you have promised? And we can pray those prayers with confidence. Now, second thing that we see in Jabez's prayer is how he viewed his identity. Now, identity is certainly a very live issue in our culture today. Questions about how do I see myself? What determines my value? What is shaping my future and my destiny? And for many people in the culture around us today, they would say those determining factors in their identity are things such as their race, nationality, religion, gender, sexual orientation, social background, social class. They would see their identity as being wrapped up firmly in those things and that those things shape them. And so the sense of worth can be negatively affected by people's attitudes towards these things. 
as can their expectations about their future, or their feelings, often of resentment, towards people who they think have a better identity than they do. And we can carry these same attitudes into our Christian lives. We can walk through our new lives still carrying the baggage of our old lives, still saying, God doesn't really accept me because I'm this, or God can't use me for his kingdom because I am that. So the, in business, one very popular uh, thing to do is what's known as a Myers-Briggs analysis, which tells you your personality. And it's one of those things that can give you a sense of identity because you ask, answer all these questions and at the end of it, you get given a report that says your personality is this and it means you're like this. And that can be a very useful and helpful thing, but it also gives people a strong sense of identity and people will then start saying, well, um, I'm this Myers-Briggs type, so that means I'm, not gonna, I'm no good at this or it means I'm particularly good at this. Now, I did one of these and it gave me a personality type, and I read through the report, and one of the sections, it said it lists uh, famous people who ha share the same personality type as yours. And the first name on the list for my personality type was Vladimir Putin. <laughs> and I thought, this is not a helpful identity. <laughs> And there are many people in the Bible who showed the same attitude when God called them. So Gideon thought that he could not be used by God because he came from the lowest social class in Israel. As he said to God, you know, my tribe is the least tribe, my clan is the least clan, and my family is the least family. As far as he was concerned, he was absolutely bottom of the social heap. And he said, I can't be used by you, God. You've got the wrong person. Moses thought he couldn't lead God's people because he was no good as a public speaker. So there are people in the Bible who God calls and they think, no, oh, no, I've got the wrong identity. I can't be used by God. Jabez could certainly have taken a negative view of his identity as we saw earlier. His name, literally, in that culture, the thing that gave you your identity was pain. He was born in pain, and his name told him his future was going to be one of pain. That was his identity as far as culture was concerned. And yet his prayer showed that Jabez recognized that God is greater than that, and that God could give him a different identity. So he prays, God, free me from pain. Let me not have pain. So on one level, he's actually saying, God, free me from what I've been told is my identity and give me something new. And the same is true of us. When we come to Christ, he gives us a new identity. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
So whatever we think our identity is, Paul says, that's the old life. However we think our identity might disqualify us from being loved and used by God, it no longer applies. And elsewhere, Paul enlarges this same point. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul listed there what are still probably the three main types of identity in our culture, namely race, class, and gender. And he divides each group into what today would be called the privileged and the oppressed identities within each of those groups. So the Jews saw themselves as the privileged group, the privileged race, and the Greeks, by which they meant everybody who wasn't Jewish, as inferior. So you can see there the same sort of mapping as we have onto the, what will be called the privileged racial group today and the oppressed racial groups. And that's how it was seen in Paul's time. And then you also have the oppressed slaves and the privileged free. And in their culture, as in so many cultures, the privileged male gender, the oppressed women. And so Paul is addressing the whole identity issue in these verses. And what he says is, to those, who, those of you who think you're privileged because of your identity, for those of you who think you're privileged because you were born Jewish, for those of you who think you're privileged because you're free, you're not a slave, and those who think, hey, I'm privileged um, so because I was born male, he's saying to them, don't think that you've earned God's favor through that identity that you have. Don't think that you actually have any privilege because of, the, of that identity. Don't think that that's the reason why you're one of God's people and that that's why God is blessing you. He says, no, you have God's favor solely through Christ not through anything to do with your birth or your background or your achievements, the wealth that you've gained, anything like that. It is solely through Christ. And then to those in the other groups, to those who would disqualify themselves, who would say, I can't have value in God's eyes the way these other people do because I've got a different identity, because I'm not a Jewish, because I'm a slave because I'm a woman, therefore I have less value in God's eyes. Paul says to them, no, your identity is in Christ. You've put on Christ. You have a new identity. So now God looks at you with the same love that he lavishes upon his beloved son. So the gospel frees us from all the issues that surround identity. It frees us from feeling resentment towards other people because we think they've got a more privileged identity than us. It frees us from disqualifying ourselves or thinking that we have less value in God's eyes because of our identity. It frees us from pride and arrogance around our identity. 
It sets us free from all of these things because it tells us we've all put on Christ. And that's where we get our value. That's where we get the love. That's why God can use us. And so Jabez has thrown off that identity that he was given of pain and can cry out to God and say, Lord, bless me. Because he knows his identity and his value has nothing to do with his background or the name that he's been given. And the final thing I just want to draw your attention to is what we see at the end of those verses about Jabez, where it says simply, God granted his request. Because when we pray, we should never forget that God loves to answer prayer. There's a heartfelt sense to the prayer of Jabez, and it doesn't really read like a formal prayer. There's something about the way that it just begins with that word, oh, that you would bless me. We can see it's a cry of the heart. And it reminds me of those people who cried out to Jesus to heal them or to heal their loved ones. Those who cried out to Jesus for help and for rescue. And the response of Jesus to those cries was not distant or standoffish. Jesus loved to answer those prayers. He went straight out to answer them. And in this, he showed us the heart of God towards us today. Indeed, there are similarities between the prayer of Jabez and the way Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, in lines such as, give us this day our daily bread and deliver us from evil. We see those parallels with what Jabez was praying for when he prayed for God to bless him, to enlarge his borders, to keep him from pain. Jesus wants us to pray for him to bless us with the things that we need. He wants us to pray for him to rescue us when we are in trouble. He invites us to pray these things because that's his heart. Because his heart is to bless us, to do us good. His heart is to rescue us and to help us. And when we pray like Jabez did for God to carry out his promises to bless us and protect us, then we can do so with a confidence that Jesus hears us and he stands ready to answer. So I think with that I'd like to hand over to Phil to just lead us in prayer. Thank you, Edward. Yes, shall we pray together? And let's pray some things that are in line with God's promises so that we can pray confidently. It tells us 